Yeah, I wanted to also mention uh, the work of Paul Gilbert. He's um, a British clinical psychologist who influenced a lot of my early work on compassion. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons why we do not feel compassion. So as I mentioned, sometimes it's just empathy, that cognitive and affective component. Sometimes it's sympathy. So just uh, feeling uh, concerned, um, sorrow for the distressed person. Sometimes it's pity where we're putting other people sort of below us in the social hierarchy. But Paul Gilbert's work has really uncovered these three, what he calls fears around compassion. So he describes how people avoid at least three different forms of compassion. So one is fear of compassion for oneself or fear of self-compassion. So fear of self-compassion. That is fascinating. So maybe ask your, your partner about this, right? But oftentimes there's this sort of gendered component to it that sometimes people feel that it can feel like really weak to be compassionate to oneself, or maybe I don't deserve to be kind to myself, or if I'm kind to myself or compassionate to myself, that I'm letting myself off the hook. And if I, if, if I experience self-compassion, then, you know, everything's going to go off the rails. And so people oftentimes feel fear about self-compassion. And you said that there's a gendered component. Do you find that one gender is more likely to fear self-compassion than another? Yes. Do you want to take a guess? Hmm. I just don't know. So oftentimes, you know, when I, when we have these classes at Stanford, um, the compassion cultivation training program, we have a lot of women who sign up really eager to sign up for these compassion courses. And then the men who sign up for the class, you know, generally in the introductions will say, I'm here with my wife and they'll point to their wife or they'll say, my wife signed (laughs) me up for this class or they're sort of sitting in the back. And so there seems to be a little bit of a gendered component. Um, People sort of lay beliefs about compassion, that it's a a woman thing, um, that if I were to be self-compassionate, that that's sort of associated with more feminine traits. Um, And so it's it's interesting, but we know that both men and women struggle with Mm -hmm. self-compassion and Kristen Neff's work at UT Austin has really highlighted this. Um, So that's the first fear around self-compassion that Paul Gilbert's uh, work highlights. The second fear around compassion is this fear of compassion for other people. So again, compassion, the object of compassion can be oneself. It can also be others. And so sometimes people have fear and subsequent avoidance around being compassionate towards other people in their lives. And so some of the beliefs here are that If I'm compassionate to other people, uh, whether it's my children, my strangers, my colleagues, that I'm going to get taken advantage of, that if I'm too compassionate, that, you know, people will see me as an easy target, or that maybe the belief is, is that there are just some people in life, um, whether it's someone who affiliates with another political party or um, at the other institution across the road, right, whatever it might be, that there are some people who just simply 
are not deserving of compassion. And so people are not compassionate towards others because of some of these beliefs. The third um, component that Paul Gilbert talks about is fear of receiving compassion from others. So we've talked about giving compassion to others, whether it's to yourself or to strangers, but then there's this other component around um, receiving compassion from others. So let's say I'm going through a really difficult time and my colleague Jennifer is um, expressing compassion to me. I can sort of feel avoidance around accepting Jennifer's compassion. Um, I can feel anxious or embarrassed about the compassion that's being expressed to me, or maybe I'm just questioning sort of Jennifer's true motives. Um, are, is her expression of compassion really genuine or are there some ulterior motives involved? I wonder, especially about that last one, whether there's one of these three fears that's more common than the others, or if they're pretty kind of generally well distributed or equally distributed across people and populations and cultures. I don't know if Paul Gilbert's work addresses that at all. I imagine it does. I'm not familiar with um, whether it differs depending on these different aspects, but what I do know is um, we can reduce people's fear of compassion in all three of these areas. So fear of compassion for oneself, fear of compassion for others, and fear of receiving compassion. So that was one of the first papers that we looked at um, in our, our Stanford compassion cultivation training program is we looked at, can we move people's feelings of compassion for themselves, for others, and being willing to receive compassion. So as you can see, there's a lot of reasons why compassion does not occur. And when you layer on a complex context like a workplace, where people are oftentimes competing with each other in some way, these fears around compassion can be amplified. And so one of my favorite books on compassion is written by uh, Monica Warline and Jane Dutton called Awakening Compassion at Work. Um, we can, you can include it in the show notes, um, but it's a really great resource for people who are interested in learning more about bringing compassion into their workplaces because compassion is difficult in and of itself. And then when you bring in, you know, the, the complexities of the workplace, um, deadlines, uh, budgets, promotions, uh, politics, those sorts of things, it can get very, very difficult. Um, and so I highly recommend their book. So speaking of work, <laughs> Um, one of the things that I was interested in when you talked about um, Warline and Dutton's book is how should compassion happen at work? What are, what are some ways to be compassionate at work? So what I would say is to start wherever it's easy. So um, if there's someone at work whom it feels really easy to be compassionate towards, maybe it's Nydia, for example, Nah. I would practice. <laughs> nah. I would practice cultivating compassion with Nydia first. And so, one of the things that we oftentimes think about is how there's this hierarchy or there's this spectrum of people for whom it feels really easy to be mm -hmm. compassionate mm -hmm. towards them. So maybe it's 
your puppy, or maybe it's your child, or maybe it's your best friend. And so we can actually cultivate our skills around compassion with some of these people who are easier rather than going directly to the most difficult person in our lives. (laughs) Oh, I I, I love that because that's exactly what happens when I'm talking with someone who's struggling with somebody else. And they're like, ah, how can I get through with this? And this is a great insight to say, well, practice with somebody with whom it's easy first, before you tackle the the hardest person on your list. Exactly. It's not that we want to avoid the hardest person on the list. So sometimes we do that, uh, but we want to work our way up to the hardest person. And so thinking about it, like if you are learning how to swim, you would start in the sort of uh, three feet area of the swimming pool and then work your way down to the 10 foot. I don't swim. So maybe that's not a good analogy. No, that makes sense. The the shallow end first. That works. Exactly. And, (laughs) And being that there's so much fear that you talked about, you know, for yourself, self-compassion for others and receiving, then going towards the most difficult person to have compassionate compassion with, it seems like it would spark those fears and make it, it just compound the issue. Yeah, I definitely recommend starting in, in the shallow end and then being willing to work your way up to the scary, dark, deep end of the pool. <laughs> It's yeah, always cold over there. You know, <laughs> it is. Temperature and you, difference between the shallow and the deep end. And sometimes you can't see what's underneath you. And that's worrisome. Um, Horia, what do you think are some of the implications when compassion doesn't happen? Um, I, and, you know, the, given the nature of our podcast, we're often talking about work uh, contexts. And so that's kind of what I'm getting at, but it doesn't necessarily have to be just um, in your experience. What, what have you seen when there's a lack of compassion um, but between individuals, couples, people, teams? Um, what, what well, happened? I think, you know, your listeners can all bring to mind experiences of being in a toxic workplace or on a toxic team, and then ask themselves this question of was compassion present there? Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be willing to bet I'm not a betting woman, but if, if I was, I would be willing to bet that they would say that compassion was not happening there. Mm-hmm. And so if we accept that suffering is a part of life, um, work life or personal life, Um, When we're not acknowledging suffering that is present, and when I say suffering that's present, that could be suffering that someone's experiencing um, in their personal lives, or maybe ways that I'm contributing to the suffering of other people on my team or other people in my organization, I'm really missing part of reality. And so when we're having miscommunication or when there's a lack of trust or when deadlines aren't being met. I'm looking at it through this lens that's not actually including the full picture of human suffering um, that exists uh, for people in organizations and for people outside of organizations. Wow, it's back to that connection again, yeah. right? You know, you're you're disconnected, and therefore, how can you, as a team, work towards something? As a couple, as you know, as friends, work toward what what you'd like to work toward if you if you're disconnected from their suffering. Yeah. And, you know, I think that we all function much better on teams and in organizations when we're grounded in reality. And and sometimes reality includes suffering. And and as I mentioned, sometimes reality includes the fact that I contribute to other people's suffering. So uh, I need to be able to acknowledge that sometimes, you know, I make Jennifer's life more difficult than it needs to be. Right. Every day, (laughs) every day, man. (laughs) And, and so if I'm willing to recognize that, then I can then sort of see how the dynamic can, can shift mm-hmm. in a way that can be adaptive. 
if I'm not willing to recognize that, then we'll just sort of continue down the same ineffective, frustrating path and we'll likely end in, in uh, a product that's not as good or in people leaving the organization. Um, so retention issues. Um, and then also just thinking about well-being of, of employees that if we spend a third of our lives at work, we want to make sure that that people are doing doing well. That's so true. What were you going to say, Nydia? Yeah, you're you're on mute this time. That's me now. Um, I I was just I was just jumping toward you know we we've cut we've established where what compassion is. We've kind of talked about what it's not. We've talked about the consequences of not having it, and ultimately in our lives, right? Work lives too. Um, and I'm wondering now that with all of that groundwork, if there's something Horia can tell us about cultivating compassion, right? In other words, if I raise my hand and say, I want to work harder at this, what, what do I do? Yeah. I hope that's true. I hope that a lot of your listeners are uh, raising their hands and thinking about how they want to become more compassionate people in their personal lives and in their professional lives. The good news is that we are not born with a fixed amount of compassion. It's not like your blood type or, or your anything like that. We can actually strengthen our skills around mus- around compassion. You can think about it as a muscle. Um, so like any other muscle, we can either strengthen that muscle with practice or if we do not attend to it, this muscle, this compassion muscle, muscle can atrophy. I have to say, I've had plenty of muscles in the last year that have tried to atrophy, I, but I do feel like there's a gym analogy coming on here. <laughs> well, yes. So it's true that if you want to develop more compassion, uh, you will need to apply some regular effort. So like at the gym, the reality is that some kind of suffering is all around us. And so we're kind of always at the gym. And so we can either choose to roam around the gym uh, and sort of look at all the equipment, or we can actually use the gym equipment so that we can get stronger. And so it's really about training your mind, your body, your heart to intentionally choose compassionate thoughts and actions. And there are now a number of different programs that exist uh, literally around the world. So wherever your listeners are located, they can likely find a compassion program in their country, uh, in their city, even online these days, where in as short as eight weeks, they can learn different skills and practices around strengthening their compassion. Um, One program that I'm a certified teacher of is the Stanford Compassion Cultivation Training Program, or CCT. And I started researching this program and authoring some papers around the efficacy of the program, and only later uh, in 2013 became a certified teacher and have taught the CCT program to a variety of groups in the Bay Area. That's really interesting. Um, Part of me wants to ask, how do you become affiliated with this, but that it's probably outside the scope here. Um, so to participate, cause you've uh, had this at Stanford and to a variety of groups, do you have to be a Stanford student or uh, affiliated with Stanford to participate? No, not at all. So the Stanford program has now been taught around the world to a range of people from MBA students. So I I taught this when I was a graduate student at uh, the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. Uh, We've taught it to software engineers at Google. 
uh, to Stanford undergraduates, to police officers, doctors, you name it. So anyone, uh, there are no prerequisites, only a willingness to be present, a willingness to have an open mind to engage in these programs. Anyone can enroll in this program. Um, and as I mentioned, there are now many certified teachers who are teaching this program online. So people don't even have to trek over to Palo Alto or California um, to take part in this. Thank you all for listening. We hope to see you in the next episode of The Mac and Willis Show. Show.